you would please turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll pick up where we left off in verse 17. Title this, The Power Before the Preaching. And let's begin by reading uh, just three verses, Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. It says that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. Well, if you've been paying Close attention, as we progress through Luke, you probably noticed that Jesus is just about to preach the most influential sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. Luke's Gospel suggests, descending from the top of the mountain, uh, he was together with this large group of people on a level area, uh, but, this, but actually the Mount of Beatitudes is located just off the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there is just such a level place. Uh, on the side of the mountain that acts kind of as a natural theater. If you've talked to anyone who's taken a tour in that area or through Israel, uh, they would probably share with you that their tour guide indicated uh, the probable location and how a man could sit there and project his voice and teach without amplification thousands of people sitting in one location. They could sit and they could hear. Some suggest that Luke here is recording a different sermon from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. That is plausible. Uh, Jesus probably preached similar content multiple occasions on, on many different times. But the timeline, the other textual similarities as we look at them, seem to provide uh, sufficient evidence, enough evidence anyhow, to insist or, or suggest excuse me, that Luke provides instead an abbreviated version of the record that is found in Matthews chapter 5 through 7. Probably the same event. We don't have everything that Jesus said recorded in Luke, folks. We don't have everything that Jesus said recorded in Matthew. In fact, the, the last verse of the Gospel of John advises us in this way. It says, there are also many other things which Jesus did. Many other things. Which if they were written in detail... I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would have to be written. I would expect that during this same sermon, Jesus probably would have even repeated sermon points, rephrased them as many of us do today, possibly even using or employing alternate terminology from time to time to restate things. Preachers do that all the time. So keep in mind, folks, that on, the, on a rare occasion... And, and it is rare. But when you see something written in one gospel that isn't phrased identical to another gospel, uh, it doesn't suggest the gospels contradict. As we've always said here, the gospels complement one another. We don't have a complete record of all Jesus said. We have a sufficient record to lead us into a loving relationship with God. That's what we have. And sometimes a small minor inconsistency it doesn't suggest a biblical inaccuracy at all. Just a, another record 
at the same event. So, so I personally embrace the view that this is the same sermon as Matthew records, uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll treat it as such when we enter the Beatitudes starting next week. In our passage, Jesus is facing a very large gathering. Very large gathering. It's reinforced by the fact you'll see looking at verse 17 that it says there were a number of disciples, uh, a large crowd. The disciples, just by themselves, remember there were more than just the 12 apostles, Jesus had many disciples, and the disciples alone are a large crowd according to Luke. Then he adds to that a great throng of many others. Luke also takes notice of Jesus' increasing ministry reach in this passage. No longer are the people only arriving from Judea and Jerusalem and the surrounding regions Luke now includes Phoenician cities. We have Tyre, Sidon. You might pronounce that in English, Sidon. That's fine. You can do that. They're along the Mediterranean coast, out to the east and to the north. The reader is to recognize, Luke wants you to realize, that Jesus' expanse of influence now is growing. Growing ever bigger. Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, includes in this same group people who are arriving from the Decapolis. That's a region of ten cities in Syria that spread up as far as Damascus. So that's to the north and to the west. The news is spread. It's spread to the Gentile regions. And Luke makes note of the fact that they are coming to Jesus. That's very noteworthy. On this day here, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Jew and the Gentile, they're both already sitting together under the teaching of Christ. That's even long before Acts enters the house, or Peter enters the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. This assembly then, this, this great Sermon on the, on the Mount becomes, it, it's a shadow of what's going to be experienced later on in the church. Just as Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Folks, if you're here, if you're trying to decide whether Jesus is for you, if you're trying to figure out whether Christ is calling out to me, for you to become one of His very own, one of His possession, that answer is emphatically yes. Jesus is calling out to you. That call is going out to all of us here. Jesus calls out. Doesn't matter what your national origin is. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter if you're slave or if you're free or if you're male or if you are female. Doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek, Paul writes, or Scythian or barbarian. It doesn't matter. Are any barbarians with us today? Any barbarians out there? You don't have to raise your hand. Jesus came to save all. He calls out. And He saves you through a message. I was encouraged that the music today was, I don't know if you noticed or not, it's very much evangelistic. Very much about the gospel and the cross 
and Christ's death for our sins. The message that goes out is the same message that Peter said earlier to Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10. There is peace with God through Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness of sins through Him. And God's Son, as Peter told Cornelius, came just as the prophets foretold, just as written in the Old Testament. Jesus was validated by many miraculous works of divine power, the power of God. And God's Son was put to death, bearing the cross of shame, the punishment of the sins of all who would come to believe in Him. Then God God the Father raised Him up on the third day. He was seen by many witnesses. And those first witnesses, as Peter the Apostle said, were us, the ones who ate with Him. The ones who dined with Him. The ones who touched Him. They became the first preachers of of what we call the good news. This is the good news. It is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 verse 9 assures you, anyone here today, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. That is a truth. If you've lived your life as some kind of barbarian, one kind or another, and if you lived your life as an offense to God, if you've lived as, uh, in rebellion against God, Jesus is extremely gracious. He calls out to you. And Jesus is extremely good news. Extremely good news. Your sins will be washed away if you humbly confess Him as the Lord of your life. In doing so, you won't only be spared of the judgment. Sometimes we, we fall into that trap as Christians. It's like, well, you can be spared from the judgment. It's not only that. It's a renewed birth. It's a renewed relationship with God. It is the blessing of living in obedience to God and knowing that He is caring for your need. It's not only that. Next week we're going to look at the Beatitudes and God promises blessings. Blessings to you. Not only in the here and now through a changed life that honors Him. He promises blessing in the new heaven and the new earth in the future. So there are many blessings that God promises to all those who will believe. The Christian gospel that we call this is good news. It's really good news. Jesus offers this this forgiveness, this salvation, as a free gift. It is a free gift. It is not something you earn. It is not through works. No one's going to boast before God and say, Well, you know, look back at my resume, God. At the end there, I didn't start out so good. A little barbarian-ish over there, but you know, I kind of made up for it at the end. No. No, none of us make make up for it. Christ made up for it. He took our punishment on the cross. The full weight of our shame. And now He offers salvation. Forgiveness of sins to anyone who will recognize it's not about what you do. It's all about what He did. That's the grace of God. Salvation is a free gift. Folks, you only need to be willing to receive it. He calls out, are you willing to receive it? That's the gospel. 
That's the gospel of the kingdom that we have been anointed as believers in Jesus Christ to preach to you. That is the message he wants you to hear. It's that there's a kingdom waiting. There's a kingdom waiting to enter after we pass away. Last week we saw that Jesus appointed 12 apostles. The word apostle means sent ones. 12 specific sent ones who would be the first to preach. The first ones to declare the gospel after his resurrection, though many others, including us, would come later. We've observed Jesus is already busy preaching this kingdom. It's not just preached after he is resurrected from the dead. There is more knowledge filling in all the questions about Jesus after he's resurrected from the dead. But he's already preaching this kingdom. The kingdom that is to come, the kingdom of God. It's the first thing that he's going to offer this crowd. You'll see in verse 20, the first thing he does is offer them the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom. Present tense. We'll look at that next week. I don't know about you folks. I have no interest at all in living for eternity in this kingdom. The pain, the the anger, the suffering, the death, no, no, no interest in that at all. Boy, if I had to live in this life for eternity, how awful would that be? Is this what it's about? Is this what it is about? No. No, thank you. Jesus is readying already here on the side of this mountain in in this flat space. Uh, He's he's readying to preach a future kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is a sermon on uh, on the mount. But before he does that, This is why I want to concentrate on this a little bit today. He supplies them or provides them with something that that I'll call a little kingdom experience. A little kingdom experience. A a little taste of what his kingdom is going to be like. He's going to provide them right here in these three verses. You know, it's kind of like those those little hors d'oeuvres. You go over to the mall food, food court and you walk by at lunchtime and Asian chow has a tray out there of different meats and stuff on there. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to, well, they're trying to get you to not go to Chick-fil-A. So they're evil. But, but they want you to have a little bit of taste, don't they? Knowing that if it tastes good, that more people will be willing to receive the full deal. They're going to give you a tiny bit so you know what you're going to expect. And that's what Jesus does in the, in the Beatitudes, too. We're going to know what we're going to expect. But here he's going to give them a tiny bit of what we can expect in the kingdom of God. He offers the people a taste of the blessing that they will eventually receive. The blessing they will receive if they receive his call to enter the kingdom. In verse 18, these people, it said, had come to hear him. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits, they were being cured. Luke first emphasizes here they came to hear him. They came to hear Jesus. To enter the kingdom, you must receive the message, the gospel message. James 1.17 says, in the exercise of his will, meaning God's will, in the exercise of his will, God brought us forth. That Greek word, therefore, brought us forth, 
It means actually, it's used many times, give birth. God gave us birth. He brought us forth. By what? The word of truth. That's how we get spiritually rebirthed is through the word of truth. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that in Christ, you also, speaking to Christians, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel. You get that? The message of truth is the gospel. In fact, Paul calls it the gospel of your salvation. And then having also believed you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So Scripture equates God's message of truth with the message of the gospel. The truth is the gospel. That that message has power, folks. The gospel has power. Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. It's living and active, folks. It's sharp. The message of the Gospel, it's the, it's the power of God to salvation. The Gospel and its power, folks, it's essential. It's essential to spiritual rebirth, to be born again, to be brought forth by God. Back in Luke chapter 4, if you remember when, when Jesus was at Peter's household and he was, he was teaching in the synagogue and, and, and people were hearing him, uh, they, were, they were witnessing with what authority and what power he preached with. Jesus preached with power. But at this point in our text, Jesus hadn't even yet begun to preach. The preaching has not yet begun. This is the power before the preaching. Concerning this crowd, they're eventually going to sit and they're going to hear the power of the gospel, the power of the preaching. But before that, what does Jesus provide them? What does He provide them? He supplies them with the power of His healing. The power of His healing. Verse 18 indicates that these crowds, they didn't only come to hear Jesus preach, but to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch Him, for power was coming out of Him, from Him, and healing how many? Them all. All. Every single one. Remember that. The Gospel of Matthew in this account includes that there were all kinds of disease, many ailments. He lists epileptics, paralytics, demoniacs as we look through the gospel every type of disease we know that from other occasions jesus cleansed lepers he raised the dead folks raised the dead miraculous healings that they were not common in the old testament we make the mistake the mistake of thinking that they were happened all the time in the old testament no they didn't healings were very rare in the old testament you consider the amount of time that that book covers, they were very, and the number of people who were involved, healings were actually very rare. No Israelite, we've studied previously, had ever been healed of leprosy before Christ, before the advent of Christ. Only Naaman the Syrian, right? He wasn't even an Israelite. No, no leper had been healed before Jesus. 
the broad scope that we see of Jesus healing. He's healing everything, all kinds of diseases. That's indicative of, of the divine power of God. It's the divine power. It's, it's now visited Israel. They should have known. This is, this is different than anything we've experienced before. This is power. No disability, no disease, nothing was beyond Jesus' power. Why? Because He was God. Nothing's beyond God's power. Nothing. Miraculous healings, they originate only from God. King of Israel, in the Old Testament, Jehoram, you can see this in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7. King Jehoram, he was directed by a Syrian king to heal Naaman. What did Jehoram do? He tore his clothes in lament, in disgust. He said, am I God? Am I God to heal this leper? And, and, and he suggested that, that that king from Syria was trying to pick a fight with him by, by trying to suggest that he had to heal the Syrian. Jehoram knew it. Mir- miraculous uh, healing, it's an act of God. It's an act of God. Jesus is divine. Folks, you and I are not. You and I are not. Jesus can. Jesus did delegate some of this power. He delegated it. We'll see, I think it's chapter 9 when we get there. He delegated it to uh, the 12 apostles. Later on, he delegates his power to the 70, the 70 others that go out. He hasn't delegated that to us, folks. He has not delegated that same power to us. I'd like just to take a moment for you to just sincerely, honestly reflect a little bit on about what I'm about to say. And it's important for those who might consider our, our membership orientation that's coming up the end of March. You'll know a little bit more about our church. I'd like you to understand, just to, to understand why, even if you don't agree, understand why we consider ourselves a non-charismatic church. Non-charismatic church. Because there, there's been misunderstandings about non-charismatic churches that actually are in error. One of them is to suggest that non-charismatic churches don't believe that God heals today. That's not accurate. That is not accurate. That, that is a, an, an incorrect suggestion. Completely inaccurate. And, and I didn't initially really set out to cross this bridge today. But as we continue here to observe these frequent miracles of Jesus, we're going to see Him with the apostles, we're going to see Him with others. All these frequent miracles happening again and again. At some point, we're going to have to come to clarify why the church doesn't experience these identical things today. You with me? At some point, that bridge has to be crossed, right? Why doesn't it look just like it did then? A non-charismatic church acknowledges that the miraculous signs, the signs and wonders, were abilities that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 designates to a true apostle. A true apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. That would be like Peter and Paul and John and James, the ones who dined with him and drank with him after his resurrection. 
True apostles, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1 and Acts 1 verse 21 confirms, had to visibly see the resurrected Christ. Had to visibly see Him. There are none today, folks. Hear that or they're really, really old. No, there are none today. Their eyewitness testimony of the resurrection and the legitimacy of their ministries was verified through visible and undeniable miracles. Visible and undeniable miracles. I.e., they were called signs. You ever heard that? Signs. Something you can see, right? They're the signs. Meanwhile, counterfeit miracles and false wonders are signs, Scripture says, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, signs of Satan. So the church is instructed in Scripture to discern between what is a true and false sign. And we're to beware of the false signs. Beware of them. Additionally, Jesus Himself cautions us in Matthew 24, verse 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So, does Jesus suggest that these false prophets, does He suggest that at least on the surface they can be kind of convincing? Kind of look like it's for real? Are we to assign merit to them before testing them? Before checking them out? No. No. Additionally, Jesus said to the Pharisees, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That is Matthew chapter 16, verse 4. Jesus rebukes one of his disciples. He's been named famously Doubting Thomas, right? After the resurrection, uh, the apostles had seen Jesus. Thomas wasn't there at the time. He said, I'm not going to believe until I've seen something. I want to put my finger in his hand, my hand in his side. Until then, I'm not going to believe. He wants to test. But Jesus told him, you believe because of what you have seen? Blessed are they who believe without seeing, right? That's John 20, verse 29. We are also told that Christians walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Because Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Let's just summarize it. The definition of faith as provided to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seeing, right? That's true faith, not seeing. Not having to test, not having to see things. We walk by faith, not by sight. So my, my question is, with all of this, why do so many Christians, so many circles, demand to see miracles when the Bible suggests that, that faith does not need them? Christians should not seek them. And we're warned by Jesus that false prophets actually invoke counterfeit miracles 
for the purpose of misleading people. I don't know how you can put that together. Now, now does that mean that our church suggests that God doesn't still orchestrate miracles? No, we do not suggest that. Anyone, anyone who's been around me any length of time, talked to me in about our life and, and uh, where God has led us, knows that I can cite numerous occasions throughout our life, numerous occasions in my life that are unexplainable apart from God. He has been there. He has provided. Uh, we believe that people on occasion, but not all the time like Jesus, right? Every time healed, on occasion God heals miraculously. He does so. He, he, he heals because He is God. That's what is God, God's prerogative. He can if He so desires, just like He did with King Hezekiah. Healed Him, added more years to His life. But I would suggest the miraculous signs, quote-unquote miraculous signs, occurring today in the charismatic circles, they don't reflect the divine miracles that we see in Scripture performed by Jesus and His apostles. They, they don't mirror what we see in Scripture, the things that were intended to verify the authenticity of Christ and His chosen apostles. For instance, I'll give a couple of examples. The miraculous healings of Christ and His apostles were immediate and complete. There was no questioning them. Miracles classified as signs, they were signs, were unmistakable to the eye. You could see them. They were visible. That's why they were considered signs. A withered limb instantaneously restored at the word of Christ. A leper immediately completely cleansed by Christ. Dead people, no longer dead. All right? These are the signs, the true signs of Jesus and his apostles. And the activity of the apostles in the first churches. The first churches that were established. We do not see true apostolic signs occurring today. We do not. There are no military veterans coming back from overseas with lost limbs suddenly and fully restored. It never happens. Faith healers, faith healers, they won't touch them with a 10-foot pole. These guys are asking for your money on TV. Person no legs comes, <laughs> scoot him to the side. It never happens. Jesus wouldn't push anyone to the side. He healed them all. Ones who had a strep throat and those who had limbs missing. We don't observe... Uh, Folks, really, we, we don't observe the doors of, our, of the Social Security building. If you're, if you're a senior, you've probably been there, maybe some of the rest. We don't see the doors of the Social Security office being pushed down. People pushing their way in, demanding reinstatement of their Social Security and Medi Medicare benefits. Hey, I'm back! Got my number there. No, it never happens. Never happens. The church does not experience uneducated men spontaneously breaking out in 19 verifiable languages. 
That's what occurred on the day of Pentecost. Go to Acts chapter 2. Nineteen languages named out there. In Acts 2 verse 11, it speaks of the Cretans and the Arabs. And they said what when they heard the apostles? We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And if you go and read through that, you'll see it's languages. Tongues are languages. Do you know how often uneducated men in charismatic churches today break out in previously unlearned and verifiable languages? Never. It never happens. In these churches, the instantaneous foreign languages are spoken 0% of the time. It's not what you see in Scripture. Pentecostal churches are completely unable, unable to replicate Pentecost. They don't do it. It's never languages. Doesn't happen in America. There's no evidence that it's happening in Africa. There's no evidence that it's happening in the jungles of New Guinea. I've had friends that have been in those regions and, and you hear, well, I hear there's something going on in the jungles in New Guinea. I, I've known uh, missionaries with, with new tribes. They're, they're, some of the, they're some of the toughest of the tough, going into the deepest areas. You probably remember there was that movie made about them down in Ecuador, End of the Spear. Those missionaries, I believe, were, uh, were those same, from that same organization, New Tribes Missions. I talked to him once as many years ago now, back when we were in Texas. And I was a new believer at the time. And I, I talked to this one missionary who had been over there for seven years in the jungles. And they had many teams that had spread out around the jungles because there's so many different tribes of different dialects and everything. He said, no, no, we don't see that. We don't see limbs restored. We don't, we don't see us breaking out in their dialect spontaneously. It never happens. It never happens. What about these stories that come, you know, from overseas? It's easy to send a story. We hear stories from across town. Does it reflect what we're seeing in the ministry of Christ? That's what we have to ask. The reasons this church, PSLBC, the reason this church is convinced the apostolic miracles and signs have ceased is not only because we're, not instruct, we're instructed not to seek signs, but instead walk by faith. It's not only because Scripture suggests that apostolic signs terminate. At least at some point you have to acknowledge that. Because 1 Corinthians 13.8 says to anticipate gifts of prophecy and tongues will eventually cease. The church was to anticipate that. It's not only because Paul says that tongues must be languages able to be interpreted because 1 Corinthians 14.6 says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by the way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? So tongues must be communicable and intelligible just like they were on the day of Pentecost. Languages. You know, the folks, I know there are going to be questions. I welcome your questions. I should be able to provide an appropriate answer. 
Well, one would be, you know, the, the Christians in Corinth were, were told to earnestly pursue the gift of prophecy. Why? Because the New Testament wasn't written yet. It wasn't completed yet. It wasn't available to them as a guide. Uh, tongues were a conduit of God speaking or prophecy. The, to, to prophesy means speak for God. That, that's what prophesy means. It, it doesn't mean just tell a future event. That's evolved. It, to prophesy means to speak for God, speak on the behalf of God. And sometimes it includes a prediction. But to prophesy um, is to speak for God. And, and speaking in tongues was a medium, a conduit for prophecy. So if Pastor Weiler here could spontaneously... Let's imagine we don't have the Bible. No one here has a Bible. And, and Pastor Weiler spontaneously utters a word of revelation, of knowledge, of prophecy, of teaching the wonderful greatness of God suddenly in Portuguese. And Rita stood up, a native of Brazil, and she interprets what he just said, and it magnifies God. And he said, I don't know why, that's it. You know, I don't know where I learned to speak this, but that is what I was trying to say. And you've got that verification of the interpretation. Is that miraculous? Is that visible, something you can see? Because we all know Gerald, and he hasn't spent any time in Portuguese school. I know that for a fact. That's a miracle. The, the church could know with confidence that that type of message originated from God, right? They could know that because they knew the people. They knew they couldn't speak any other language. Suddenly they're speaking in perfectly fluent languages. And it gets interpreted from someone there who knew that language. That, that, was, that was God speaking through the, through the miraculous uh, medium or conduit of tongues. It, it verified that the message that the person was bringing was from God. It wasn't a hoax. That's how you would know. Because the person, you've known the person all your life, and they, they never spoke that language before. That's how you could get a message from God before the Scriptures were completed. With the completion of Scripture, Revelation chapter 20, so it's prophesying. I want you to know that. The, the medium of tongues was speaking for God, it was prophesying, speaking on behalf of God. It was a prophecy. Re Revelation chapter 22 says what? You shall not add to the prophecies in this book. Right? We all know that. Prophetically, God has finished speaking to the church. He says so. He has finished speaking to the church. Everything that we need is here. Everything we need to know about Christ, the Holy Spirit, everything is in His Holy Word. Tongues and prophecy have ceased. But PSLBC is a non-charismatic church, not only because of the overwhelming scriptural evidence. It's not only because of Christ's commands to live by faith, not by sight. Don't have to see a miracle. It's not only because of the warnings that Christ gives about the allure of things that give an appearance of being supernatural, false signs and wonders peddled by false prophets. It's not only the warning. It's also because in a practical sense, we don't see any visible evidence of the miraculous 
in the present in the church today. No limbs fully restored, no lepers immediately cleansed, no dead people raised, no genuine languages spoken, only Babel. Never. We never see it. Even the churches that practice will admit they don't do that. What's observed in charismatic circles today falls short of what is divine and short of what is visibly miraculous. Folks, Jesus doesn't fall short. When he makes an offer, he delivers on it. He heals every time. He comes through when he says he's going to come through. The beatitudes, the blessings he will offer these people. When we start next week, chapter or verse 20, these blessings that are offered to them, they are offered to you. The people that are going to listen to him preach, after they have seen the miraculous healings, they know they're going to be able to trust his word, his holy word, They know they can trust Him. We know we can trust His Word as well. We know it by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We know we can. Everything promised to them in the kingdom, it's also promised to us for entrance into the kingdom. We don't need to see miracles. We have the written Word of God that is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and even for the Greek, right? What is the power of God? The Word of God. It's not, it's, not, it's not signs. The power of God is in His Word, the Gospel. It's a power unto salvation. I didn't have to see anything. God had to change my heart. That's the power of the Word of God. He offers you the same entrance into His eternal kingdom through faith. Next week we'll see He also promises you rewards and blessings for serving in His kingdom through faithfulness. God has a lot to say. But before we progress there, before I call the men forward for the Lord's Supper in a few moments, there's an application for here. Application for Christians. Today the power of God isn't seen in supernatural miracles. It means they're not visible, even though God does miracles. But that doesn't suggest that God's power is not visible. It's also not that people can't see the power of God displayed today, because they can. It it is visible to their naked eye. They can see it. Your friends can see it. Your family can see it. Your boss at work can see it. How does he see it? Where is it visible today? In your changed life. That is the power of God unto salvation. Scripture says the gospel is the power of God. And through salvation, through spiritual regeneration, through a changed heart by the renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, by that Christians become new creations, right? Alive to God. The indwelling Holy Spirit gives us the power to resist sins that we couldn't previously resist. Previously, we didn't even want to resist them, right? God gives us that power unto salvation. It is a miraculous spiritual healing by Christ. It is miraculous in a sense, right? It's not a sign. Nobody can see it, but it's visible. Isn't that something? 
And when we experience our new passion for God, what do we immediately want to start doing? I mean, you've gotten saved and you're all fired up about how you know your sins are forgiven and you're no longer going to hell, but you're going to heaven uh, to live with Christ for eternity. What do we want to start doing? I know what I want to start doing. Start preaching, right? Start preaching hard. I preached a little too hard when I first got saved. few people got a little bit pushed away. Folks, sometimes there, there is an opportunity that has to be seized immediately. Sometimes it's an emergency that you got to preach with urgency. You know what I'm saying? Not denying that. But notice on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus didn't begin by preaching. He didn't begin with the preaching. He began with the power of God displayed through the healing. He began with the healing. It was the power before His preaching. And just like I read last week from Charles Spurgeon, if you were here, read a little excerpt from his book about the power of prayer and how prayer is one of the necessary wheels in the machinery of the providence of God. God uses it in His providence and His sovereignty. I'd like to suggest that the power displayed in your changed life, what God has done for you, I'd like to add in that's another one of those wheels in the machinery of the providence of God working with the prayer, and working together. It, it is an evidence of God, the evidence of God's power that people can see in you. But it's not a miraculous sign. You didn't grow a limb back. But it is the power of God. It is supernatural. In a sense, it's a miracle. But I don't recall Scripture ever referring to your new life as a miracle. I could be wrong on that. I didn't didn't research it fully. But I don't recall Scripture ever referring to that as a miracle. It refers to it as what? Salvation. It refers to it as rescuing from sin, right? You've been rescued from your sin. It is divine. It indicates you've been delivered from the power of sin, just as Israel was delivered from its oppressors. You've been saved. Every single Christian experiences this at one level or another, this change. It's an evidence of God's power. One person might be delivered from the habit of blaspheming. You know, it's real offensive to God. I didn't know if you knew that. That sin, it's a bad one. It's a bad one. You might have been delivered from pornography. You might have been delivered from alcoholism. You might have been saved from all of the, that. Is that supernatural? Yes. Yes, it is. It's a spiritual work of God. Is it an apostolic sign to others? No. It's not a sign. It's not a miraculous sign. It is salvation. It's not classified as a miracle, the likes, the same that are performed by Jesus and his apostles. But is your life nonetheless visible? It is. It is. That's where I'd like to wrap up. Is your new life undeniable? To others? I hope it is. Is your life visible enough to make your audience sit and listen to what you have to say? That you can speak to them? Is your, is your new willingness to love them, is it convicting? Does it draw them in? Is your genuine concern and care for their well-being, do they see that as divine? Is it, is it new? Uh, divine is because divine is its origin. 
Is your gentle spirit, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, is, it, is your gentle spirit known to men? Is it displayed among men? Is it visible to men? It should be, folks. It should be. Don't underestimate the ability of God to harness your witness, your changed life, your testimony, and put it in the machinery of His providence. Ask that you embrace people. You show the concern that you have for them, that you want to reach out to them. You want to meet their needs. Being a new creation, His Holy Spirit gives you the ability to reach out beyond yourself. Beyond your own self-interest. Provide friends, provide family with that opportunity to see your changed life before relentlessly blasting them with the truth. Invest a little time. Let them see who you are. They might think that you're nuts. In love for Jesus, crazy for Jesus, that's a good thing. They might see that you truly love them enough to reach out and touch them and heal them. Because you know what, folks? In our study here, over time, Jesus had earned a reputation. He'd been preaching to them, and he'd been serving them, and they want what he has to say. Is that good stuff? Eventually, you get to the preach. You can't ignore the preach. That's got to come. That's got to come. We'll talk about that next week. I'd like the men to come forward. I thank you for your time.